Well, it's great to have you at The Crossing today. The Crossing is one church that meets in multiple locations. Our southeast campus meets in the Henderson area. And so if you have friends who live in the Henderson area, invite them to go to our southeast campus. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and give a big welcome to not only our southeast campus, our microsites, those who are watching online. Glad you're part of The Crossing family with us. So let me just start off with a question. Um, How many of you, when you go to the grocery store and you're in the checkout line, that you begin to read the tabloid magazines that are there at the tab- at the uh, checkout line? Anybody, maybe it's just me, okay? Or maybe a bunch of you just lie. You know, I think that's probably more close. I never pick the magazines up. I just read the headlines. I, I just want to know, you know, who lost weight this this year and, you know, what can I learn from them? Or, you know, what crazy things did Kim and Kanye do this week? Or... You know, what scandal is going on? And there is something about us that we like to observe someone else's drama. We like to see someone else's drama. And I think the reason is, is because if we can look at their mistakes, then we don't have to admit our own. We don't have to deal with what's going on in our own life. Well, today we're diving into one of David's biggest mistakes in his life. And here's the thing, it doesn't appear to be that big a deal. At first glance, it actually looks like he is doing the wise thing. But that is the subtlety of sin in our lives. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And what we've seen over the the past few weeks is we've been going through the life of David. We've seen him as a giant killer. We've seen him as a hero, as a worshiper, as a forgiver, as a compassionate king, a man after God's own heart. But he is flawed. He is a flawed hero to us, which gives us hope in our own lives. And this story takes place in the later years of David's life. And this should be a wake-up call to every one of us who is a little bit older. Because we tell stories about the dumb things that we did as a teenager or the dumb things that we did in college. But if we are not careful, if we get too complacent in our relationship with God, we have the potential to make our worst decisions as we get older. And when we make the worst decisions as we get older, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the people that we love around us that the stakes are incredibly high. The story that we're going to look at today, it's in 2 Samuel 24, and it's also found in 1 Chronicles 21. But we're going to look mostly at the one that is in Samuel. And here's how it says. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Judah. Now, we don't understand exactly why God was angry at them, but this is just the pattern of the children of Israel. The pattern for them is just disobedience. We see it time and time again. And God is angry at them, and he allows David to be tempted to do something that he shouldn't. Look at what the scripture says in 1 Chronicles. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. See, this is what happens in our lives, is that Satan has a way of getting into our lives and convincing us to do what we know that we shouldn't do. 
It says, so the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Now I read this and I I don't understand why this is so bad. I mean, this is not David and Bathsheba bad. You know, what is wrong with counting the people? You know, what does God seem to have against math? Why does this seem to be a big deal? But here's what we're going to find out. Here's what we will learn is that David wants to put his trust in the numbers. That that David wants to see how impressive his army really is. And what we're also going to see is we are the only ones wondering why this is wrong. That everyone else in the story knows this is a bad idea. Says, but Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord, the king see it. But why does my Lord, the king want to do such a thing? See, Joab is, is David's commander and he tries to give him this wise counsel. He's like, David, I I hope that God just multiplies the numbers of troops that are under you. And and I hope that you recognize it, but don't do this. And instead of listening to Joab, David pulls rank. And it says right here, it says, the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. That David does not listen to the counsel of his most trusted advisors. And there is an application for us that I don't want us to move past too quickly. And here's this application. To live an unaccountable life, it is a recipe for disaster. Then when you are not accountable to anybody, it is a recipe for disaster. See, David has reached a period in his life where he doesn't answer to anyone. He can do whatever he wants virtually without challenge. Even when his most trusted advisor warns him, he overrules it and he says, just do it. Just do it. David is not accountable to anyone. See, this is a learning for us. For me, at the crossing, I am the senior pastor here, but I am under authority. We have a group of elders who ultimately oversee the church, and they have authority over me. And if I go off the rails, they have the authority to fire me. And that is a good thing. That's the way that it should be. If you find yourself in a place of unquestioned authority, be careful. Let this be a warning to you because it is a recipe for disaster. You need to have people in your life that you are accountable to. You need to have people in your life who have permission to speak into your life and to say the hard things that you need to hear. See, this is why we believe that small groups are such a big deal to us at the crossing, is that when you surround yourself with other people who have permission to speak into your life and you can speak into their life, it's how God uses these relationships to protect us. Well, David does not listen to the counsel of Joab or the commanders. And so they leave and they start counting the troops. And it takes them 10 months to count all the people. It says, Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men 
who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000 that they report back to David, there is 1.3 million people who can handle the sword. I mean, this is a big army. And while David and Joab should be high-fiving each other, they should be high-fiving and go, can you believe we have 1.3 million soldiers? At this point, David knows that it was a bad idea. And now he begins to feel the guilt of his decision. It says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. See, this is why David was a man after God's own heart. Is he was far from perfect, but at the end of the day, his heart, it was sensitive towards God. It says, it says right here that David was conscious stricken, that the Hebrew word right here is the word nakah, and what it literally meant is to be attacked or assaulted, that David is attacked by his own conscience. David realized that he had made an incredible mistake, but God takes this seriously, and God sends a prophet by the name of Gad to speak to David. And this is what God told Gad to say to him. He says, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. God says to David, I want you to choose the consequence that's going to happen to you. When my daughter, Corey, just started driving, we had this rule in the house that, that you cannot talk on your cell phone when you're driving in the car. You know, back then, you know, it wasn't against the law, but it was against the law in the Philip household. And there was no Bluetooth, especially at the old cars that we bought. You know, there was nothing like that. So one day I see her talking on her phone on her way to school. Well, when she gets home that night, I asked her, I said, were you talking on your cell phone while you were driving? Now, I already knew the answer to this question. And she said, she said, yes, I was. I go, okay. I go, here's your punishment. Either you lose your cell phone for a week or you lose your car for a week. You decide. And so she thought about it for a little bit. She said, well, I'll give up my cell phone and I'll keep my car. I said, okay, that's fine. The next day she came to me, she said, can I change my mind? <laughs> she said, I would rather have my cell phone than my car. The typical teenager. I said, sure, you can change your mind. And so then for the next week, I had to drive her around everywhere she needed to go. <laughs> it was more of a punishment on me than it was on her. Here's what God says to David. He says, choose your own consequence, and none of these are good. Three years of famine, or three months being on the run for his life, or three days of plague, and they will all end in death and destruction. And just as a side note, let me just call a timeout here for just a second, because we look at this story, and this is why some of you, you struggle with God. You struggle with God because you're like, why would God do this? 
And this is part of your problem that you have with God. And here's what you need to realize. That David and the children of Israel were under the old covenant. We read our Old Testament. That is the old covenant or the Old Testament. They were under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. See, when Jesus came, this is why it was such a big deal. Is because when Jesus came, that he abolished the old covenant. The old covenant, God said, I will if you will. But if you don't, I won't. The new covenant is Jesus took the punishment for our sin and he paid for it himself. We live under the new covenant. But here's what it says. David said to Gad, he says, I am in deep distress. Now, this word right here literally means to be all tied up. Now, you felt like that, haven't you? You know, where you have a decision and you're just sick to your stomach. That, that you are just struggling, that you just feel like you're going to get sick, your stomach is cramping. He said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. He says, I, I'm in great distress, but I would rather fall in your hands, God. In other words, I would rather face whatever God has for me than to put my life into the hands of my enemies. And there would be a high price that would be paid. Except in this case, it would not be David who paid the price. It would be his people who paid the price for his decision. It says, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 thousand people. Our decisions don't just affect us. Everyone around us will pay the price for our bad decisions. And the guilt for David, it is just overwhelming. The guilt of having 70,000 people die because of his sin is overwhelming. And David says, what have I done? I'm the shepherd. I was supposed to protect the people. And he finally just says, God, let your hand fall on me, but don't do anything else to these people. Well, as I was studying this passage, I kept coming back to the question, why? Why does God view the counting of the people as evil? Because we could actually make a case why this is wise. He, he needs to know. But everyone in this story knew that this was wrong. But Why? And my first thought is I was just trying to figure this out. Maybe God is just really upset with David's motive behind it. Maybe David had become prideful. Maybe he wants to brag that he has a 1.3 million person army. And he wants to make himself look more powerful than everyone else. And at the core, this is just a boastful thing. That this is a pride problem. Now, that may be the case. But that doesn't seem to fit within the David that we know. This is the same David who defeats Goliath by God's power for God's glory. This is the same David who killed Saul, who did not kill Saul and take the throne in his own timing. He waited for God to take care of that and for God to put him in as king. This David is the one who allows Mephibosheth to sit at the king's table and he displays God's grace to the broken. This is the David whom God called a man after my own heart. And so this just doesn't make sense to me. Pride does not seem to be at the center of God's heart, of David's heart here. 
I think the motivation is far less sinister and far more normal. I think what David was doing, I think David was developing a safety net. Most scholars believe that David was was putting together a standing army. A standing army was a military presence that could act at a moment's notice. And a standing army of 1.3 million soldiers, it is massive. It's huge. And not only was a standing army a safety net, it was a sign of expansion that they could go and they could conquer the surrounding nations and they could expand the kingdom of Israel. See, I I think David's motives were normal. I I believe he was just coming up with a backup plan. He was just coming up with a safety net, a plan B. See, plan A for David was always God. Plan A was God is going to protect me. Plan A is God is going to provide for me. God is going to guide me as I'm leading this nation. I think David was developing a plan B just in case. Just in case God doesn't come through. And the plan B is highly offensive to God. See, we are all familiar with plan A and plan B, right? If you're a 12-year-old boy, plan A is to be a professional athlete. Plan B is to go to school. Plan A for us is to win the $1.6 billion lottery and retire. Plan B is we're going to keep working because plan A hasn't happened yet. Plan B is your backup plan. Plan A says... I'm waiting for a godly man or a godly woman to come into my life. Plan B says, God's not bringing that person into my life, and so I'm going to compromise the kind of person that I'm going to date. Plan A says, I will be generous with God because God has been generous with me. Plan B says, well, when I have a little bit more money, then I'll give back to God. Plan A says, I take you to be my husband, I take you to be my wife, until death do us part. Plan B says, well, I was never really in love with them anyway. Plan A says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Plan B says, well, I don't want to force my kids to go to church. Plan A says, I'm going to trust God to fulfill my deepest needs. Plan B says, well, I need that drink. I need that drug. I need that image to fulfill me. And as Christians, we are very familiar with this. See, plan A says, God will come through for me. As Christians, this is our plan A. God will come through for me. That God will provide for me. God will satisfy me. God will guide me to the right college or the right job or the right spouse. That God has a purpose for me. Plan A is God will come through for me. And plan B is if God doesn't come through, I'll still be okay because of, and it's whatever you fill in the blank. If God doesn't come through, I'll still be okay. If for some reason God is not real, Or if for some reason God doesn't guide me, or if I'm not successful, or if he doesn't send the right person at the right time, if if the Christian life doesn't work out the way that I think that it should work out, I'll still be okay because I have, and you fill in the blank. 
you fill in the blank. So here's my question. What's your plan B? What is your plan B? What is the thing that in the back of your mind, if God doesn't do what you think that he should do, then this is what I'm going to do. It's your safety net. See, I can tell you that plan B has some very serious side effects. Plan B, it sneaks into your heart, and it is so subtle, it tricks you into thinking that you don't need God. See, at the end, plan B says, God, I hope that you're there, but if you don't do what I think that you should do, I'll be okay. Plan B tricks you into thinking, I just don't need God. Let me tell you about my plan B. When my grandma died years ago, she left us a small inheritance. Now, it wasn't a life-changing amount of money, but it was enough to pay our bills for six months to a year if I was out of work. So when we started the crossing, I didn't know if we would make it. When we started it at Lawrence Junior High, I didn't know if we were going to make it as a church. And so I knew at least if we didn't make it that I could feed my family until we got back on our feet. Well, after the crossing was up and going, and we knew that we were going to make it, there were just times where I just thought, I just don't know if I can keep doing this. I just want to know that I can quit at any time, and I can walk away, and we'll be just fine. So when we found the piece of property that we sit in right now, 15 or so years ago, and we built these first three buildings that we built. Darla and I were praying about what we would give, what we would sacrifice. And we wrestled with several things. But we felt like God was calling us to give that entire inheritance. Now listen, I'm not saying that having a savings account is bad. I'm not saying that, that having a, an emergency fund is unspiritual. It's actually biblical to have those things. But for me, it was my plan B. It was my safety net just in case I wanted out. And we just felt like God saying, you need to get rid of plan B. See, plan B sneaks into your heart. It is so subtle. And we discount it by saying, well, it's just no big deal. We look at the story of David and we don't understand what is the big deal with counting the troops. I mean, come on, God. You need to chill out a little bit because this is not a big deal. The problem is plan B is highly offensive to God. And here's the principle for today. That if God is your plan A, there is no room for plan B. If God is your plan A, there is not room in your life for a safety net. See, when you read the Ten Commandments, we read the Ten Commandments and it says, do not murder do not steal, do not lie. I mean, these are just general human being living type of things. But the very first of the Ten Commandments says, you should have no other gods before me. And we read that and we think this is about priorities, that as long as God is number one, that we are good. But at the heart of this commandment, you should have no other gods before me. He's not saying you can have other gods as long as I'm number one. No, what he is saying is, let me just rephrase this. What he's saying is, you shall have no other gods in my presence. No other gods before me. I will not share you. That you should have no other gods, period. 
See, if you leave room for plan B, it becomes so easy to disobey God. And we begin to treat God like we treat our parents. You remember growing up that you would obey your parents as long as you agreed with them. But if you didn't agree with them, you would just do your own thing and you wouldn't tell them. This is what we start to do with God. We start to do with God that if we agree with God, well, yeah, I'll obey in this area. But if we don't agree, then we just go and we just do our own thing. Listen, 95% obedience is 100% disobedience. And this takes us straight to the heart of Christianity, that God wants your entire heart. He wants all of you. And so I thought I would just kind of rephrase this for you, just kind of rephrase this, this main idea, is that plan A is to trust God, period. You're trusting God with everything. Plan A is you trust God, period. Plan B, see plan A, because that's the plan. It is out of this encounter that we run into one of the most significant moments in David's life, that God will send an angel to stop the plague, to stop the killing from happening in Israel. And then God told David to build an altar at that place where this angel stopped the killing. He was to offer a sacrifice. This sacrifice was a sacrifice of forgiveness. It is it was making amends with God for his sin. And so he goes to this piece of property. David goes to this piece of property where this angel had stood. And this guy is so honored that David would show up, that David was there. And this guy just says to David, you just take whatever you want. I mean, you're the king, you're David. You just take it. But David insists on paying here's what David says. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not sacrifice to God that which cost me nothing. Obedience, it will cost you something. Following God's will for your life, it will cost you something. That if you want the easy life where it doesn't cost you anything, it's not the Christian life. Because following God will cost you. But I would rather face hardship with God than to go on my own without God. David was a flawed hero. He didn't always get it right, but he had a heart that sought after God his entire life. Fast forward a thousand years, and the real hero arrives. And Jesus steps in on our behalf, and he takes your punishment on the cross. That Jesus went to the cross knowing your sin, knowing what you had done. And he said, I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'm going to pay for it myself. And this right here is what makes the scripture in 2 Corinthians so powerful. For it is Christ's love that compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, this is plan A. This is what God wants for you. And I want to pray with you, but here's my question for you. Where have you allowed plan B to sneak into your heart, to begin to take over? Did just begin to push God out just a little bit, and we've justified it. You've justified it. It's time to surrender your plan B to God. Say, okay, God, my plan A, my plan B, it is all to trust you. And I may not see it yet, but I'm going to trust you. Let's pray together. God, right now in this room, and for everybody who is watching us right now, there are some hearts of ours that need to shift and to surrender our plan B's to you. Say, God, we're going to follow you. We're going to follow your plan. We're going to be obedient no matter the cost. So God, I just pray that you would meet us right where we are. That for those who are making a significant step right now, God, you would help them to feel your presence. God, thank you for Jesus who came to pay the ultimate price for us. So we pray this in his name, in the name of Jesus.